So we're finishing 1 Peter tonight. What a great book, right? Our Pilgrim's Precepts, as we've been looking at this book and the, the different teachings that Peter has given to you and I as believers, pilgrims, not of this world, as we're traveling through to our home, whose maker and builder is God, that, you know, the kingdom, the new Jerusalem that the Lord has prepared for us that we're going to be studying pretty soon in Revelation. So uh, go and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to take all 14 verses tonight. The study I'm calling the Rocks School of Ministry. Apostle Peter, that's a good one. <laughs> all right, <laughs> thank you. Hey, I made the A list, right? If, if I get past you in life, that's pretty good. I'm, all right, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your blessings to us, Lord. And Lord, thank you for the chance to serve you. And Lord, tonight as we sit under your teaching, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be effective servants, ones that represent you, Lord, ones that have a biblical mindset, ones that have a biblical ministry. Lord, we pray for our church here at Calvary Hanford, Lord. We pray for Refuge Sanger and Lord Calvary Tulare, Lord, that our churches would shine brightly, Lord, here in the valley, Lord, as well as the other churches here in the valley. Um, Lord, the churches in Fresno and Hanford and Visalia, Lord, that we would shine brightly, Lord, that we would, Lord, take the gospel, Lord, and we'd see the valley turned upside down for you and your glory. And so, Lord, minister to us, Lord, we pray heart to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's common in schools of ministry to have a experienced pastor come in and they'll share on the ministry and their experiences of the ministry. Then they'll give some practical insight um, to the ministry. I would be interested to see what it would be like to have an apostle come. You know, one of the first century apostles, here's Paul, you know, he comes in right after he's just got beaten. You know, he comes in, you know, he bore, as he said, the cross of Jesus Christ, you know, through his his suffering, or to have John, the apostle John, come in. You know, in a sense, we have their epistles, and so we, you know, we have what they would say. And tonight, we get a good glimpse of what the apostle Peter would teach us as he would come in and teach us about the ministry. The apostle Peter is going to teach us what it's like to serve the Lord as pilgrims as we journey through this world. He begins in verses 1 through 4 by addressing those who are called into the position of leadership. And here's what Peter says in verse 1. He says, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And so the elders here refers to the pastors and assistant pastors, maybe even the elders, the, the um, leaders of the church. There would be a lot of elders that are addressed in this, not just one or, or two, because you remember that Peter was writing to a group of believers that were scattered throughout Asia Minor, throughout a number of towns. And so more than likely, there was a number of elders here that were addressed. Now, pastors are given a number of names or titles in Scripture. They're called elder here. And the name elder doesn't necessarily refer to the age of the man because we know Timothy was a younger man. Paul told Timothy, hey, don't let anybody despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, faith, you know, purity, um, and those things. And so it's not necessarily referring to age, but it's referring to position. It's referring to leadership. There's also a title used of a pastor. It's bishop in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Often we think of the word bishop. We think, oh, man, it must be someone high, like in, in the hierarchy of a church structure. But bishop just means overseer. It's someone who functions as an elder. Also, pastors are referred to as pastor teachers. And that's what Paul referred to um, pastors as in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He said that God has appointed these in the church First, apostles, second, prophets, third, pastors and teachers and evangelists for the equipping of the saints, 
for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so a pastor, teacher, this really describes the responsibility or the function of a bishop or an elder. Their job is to care for the flock, feed the flock, and lead the flock. Now notice, even though Peter was an apostle, he exhorted these believers as a fellow elder. So he didn't put himself in a sense, in, in a hierarchy over them. He referred to them, to himself as a fellow elder. And so he ministered to them along these same lines. And so there's really nowhere in scripture that would reveal Peter as the first pope. We all know the Catholic church teaches that Peter, you know, Peter is the first pope and things like that. But, you know, when you read scripture, when you read Peter's account of himself, especially when he gets rebuked by Paul in the book of Galatians for, you know, not withdrawing from the Gentiles, we know he's not the first pope. Peter was a, um, an apostle. You know, he was given the authority of the Lord, as the other apostles were, to lay the foundation of the church with the apostles' doctrine, which was the, the explaining of the teachings of Christ. And, you know, he did have authority in that sense, but, you know, there's no more scripture that would exalt him above um, everybody else. Now, there's an encouragement here for leaders and pastors, and it shows us this. You know, Peter had this amazing ministry as an apostle, and he's had, you know, an even greater ministry in, in having the opportunity to write the word of God as the spirit moved on his heart. And, you know, but nevertheless, he was an elder just like these other guys that, were writing, that he was writing to in the trenches and in, in the thick of it. In a sense, it's an encouragement for elders, for, for pastors, and that regardless of how big a person's ministry is or how much responsibility or, or how much limelight they get in the sense of the body of Christ. I mean, you got guys like Greg Glory who are, you know, this Saturday's gonna be the Harvest Crusade. And there's going to be millions of people watching. And wow, what an amazing ministry. But nevertheless, it's just the same ministry as the pastor in a small town ministering to a small church. And so in the same sense here, Peter had a great ministry, but nevertheless, he was an elder just like these guys in the trenches who we don't even know anything about. But as they all stand in from the Lord, they're all going to receive the reward. Now, Peter referred to himself, as I said, on the same lines. He experienced and saw the sufferings of Christ. And he was also going to be a person who would inherit that special um, inheritance that was reserved in heaven, as we talk, talked about in chapter one, that glorious inheritance that's undefiled, that does not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. It has your name on it. And Peter said, hey, I'm an inheritance. This is what drives me. This is what moves me uh, to serve the Lord. The suffering of Christ, the fact that he died in my place, but yet that crown, that, that glory that I'm going to receive when I stand in front of him. Now the exhortation in verse two Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And so here's some practical exhortations that Peter gives us to have a Jesus-style ministry. And so in his pastor's plot, their notebooks kind of thing. And you know, here's Peter, he's gonna lay these things down. First, he says, remember that your ministry is a stewardship. They were to shepherd the flock of God as an overseer. Peter reminds these pastors at the church, the people that they were ministering to were bought by God with the precious blood of his own son, the Lamb of God. They were bought by God. It's, it's his church. It was established by him. They were established or appointed by Jesus as under shepherds, under the chief shepherd. So it's the Lord's flock and the Lord raises men up in a sense, to have a stewardship to, to care for these sheep um, and to be faithful in doing so. 
They were to shepherd the flock of God. This can be summed up, you know, this really sums up the responsibility of a pastor. Shepherd the flock of God. Now, now what does that even entail? Well, it's a lot more than probably can be put on paper, really, if you think about it. it. Just if you think about it for a while. Basically, you can say that a shepherd's job is to do whatever needs to be done to care for the sheep. It's like saying, what are the responsibilities of a parent? Right? Think about that for a while. It's like, what's the response? I mean, obviously, you have the list, and, and we'll talk about some of these things uh, right now of, of a shepherd, but nevertheless, it's really whatever needs to be done. I mean, you're busy 24-7, right? It's a full-time job to be a, a, a mom or a dad. I understand that. And so, um, you know, and the same thing for, you know, for a pastor or, or a minister. It's whatever needs to be done to care for the sheep, which is why the ministry of a pastor is a supernatural gift. It's a calling not just something that, that someone chooses. Now, as I said, while the list can go on, there are some essentials for a shepherd among the sheep, feeding the word of God, right? Protecting the sheep from predators, that is those who would come in and stumble people in the flock or teach some weird false teaching. Their job is to lead the flock, right? In the direction that the chief shepherd commands. Their job is to care for the sheep that is to care for those who are hurting, correct wayward sheep so they don't get hurt. I mean, and praise the Lord that we have pastors like that. And in, in, in the Calvary Chapel movement, we have a real good example of, of men walking after um, the Lord's heart and also in, in the larger body of Christ in general as well. And Peter says, this is what the ministry is. This is what a, a pastor is supposed to do, to feed the sheep, to, to teach the sheep, to, to lead them. Now, after the responsibilities of the pastor, Peter gives us some correct, uh, he uh, gives us really the correct mindset and the correct manner in which we're to do this ministry. Now, the main point of these verses here is really to encourage those persecuted pastors that were already in the thick of it. Often when you read commentaries, they spend all their time as kind of a checklist for those who want to go in the ministry. They say compulsion, yeah, you know, you're not forced into the ministry. But Peter's really talking to those guys who have already been serving. They're already in the trench of it. And they're really in the thick of it too because they're being persecuted. It shows us that it's possible for anybody in the ministry to fall into one of these ideas or habits. And Peter just gives us really these things as a guideline for us in the ministry to kind of stay the straight course as we walk with the Lord. His first encouragement is don't serve by compulsion, but serve willingly. Serving by compulsion means because you have to. Yes, all pastors have responsibilities as all employees have responsibilities to go to work. Sometimes we're not real excited about going to work, right? But nevertheless, we're to do it because we're called to do it. And, you know, and we need to keep that mindset that we're here, we're here and we serve because this is what the Lord has called us to do. And really, the Lord doesn't need us, but we get to serve him. It's not by compulsion. We're not forced to do it, but it's a blessing. It's willingly. It comes from a pure, willing heart. Second ministry is not to be done with a hidden agenda, which in reality is being dishonest with the Lord. It looks genuine outwardly, but if ministry is only done for money, fame, or power, it's done for the wrong reason. Ministry must be done eagerly for Jesus. It's to be done because the Lord is good. Third Peter says, nor is being lords over the flock, but examples. Peter saw this firsthand as he sat under Jesus' teaching. He saw the Lord minister and act. He heard the Lord's teaching, specifically that passage there where the, remember the apostles were fighting about who would be the greatest in the kingdom? I'm gonna be the greatest, I'm gonna be the greatest. And Jesus turns around and says, hey guys, by the way, you know the Gentiles, they lord over people and 
you know, those are the people that, you know, that you see. But he said, not so among, you know, among you, among my kingdom, but those who are going to be the greatest need to be the servants of all. And the Lord demonstrated that with his life. And that's what Peter says here. The Lord didn't give his commands to his apostles while sitting in a gold palace, but he was with them, among them, serving, teaching, and, and, and walking with them. And that's what we see here represented by Peter in the examples we see in Scripture. Now, how are we to keep this biblical mindset, this manner of ministry? Well, look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So these pastors, even in the midst of persecution, can keep a straight course by looking unto Jesus, who is coming to resurrect the dead and rapture the church. And this would really be what would drive these guys, the soon, the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. The Lord is coming. And these men would stand in front of the Lord as, at his reward seat, and they would receive this crown of glory that does not fade away. Now think about this crown of glory for a second, in contrast to the crowns that the world seeks to give. You know, here is this pastor somewhere in Asia Minor, experiencing persecution, right? But yet, what they're going to receive for their faithful ministry would be a lot more than any person in the Roman government or anything, you know, the world stresses power. They, you know, they stress fame, pleasure, money, right? But in the end, all that burns. It all fades away. But yet, the person who's faithful to the Lord and serves him faithfully is going to receive a crown that does not fade away. It's a good motivator, right, to, to keep a straight course. Now, Peter, in verses 5 through 14, addresses ministry to all believers, ministry in general. Notice verse 5. Likewise, you younger people... Submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Peter addresses ministry in, in light of relationships. And the first relationship that he talks about here is the believer's relationship to leadership. Now notice he specifically addresses those who are younger. So this could refer to younger people in the body, but most scholars feel that it can actually refer to those who are younger in the faith. And he teaches these believers that while elders and pastors are equal to believers as far as their salvation and their walk goes, nevertheless, they're to be respected and obeyed because they have God-given authority. They've been entrusted to that by the Lord. Now, I believe that Peter addresses the younger here because those who are mature should already be walking in this manner. And so it's not just singling out one group. Obviously, those who are mature in the body, they should already be submitting to the leadership. They should already be walking you know, uh, after the Lord and, and following his example. Now, next, Peter deals with our relationship and ministry to one another. He said, all believers are to be submissive to one another and clothed with humility. To be submissive means to render to each person proper respect and love. It's to act biblically towards one another. And it's really interesting in the body of Christ, you know, as the Lord takes people from all different walks of life. But in the body of Christ, position really from the outside world means nothing. We're all fellow believers in a sense, and we all need to render, you know, love for one another regardless of our background or our, our education or whatever it might be. Right? We're to love one another and serve one another. We're to put on the garment of a servant as we are in the household of the Lord and among his body. And that's what Peter refers to here. I'm told that the word clothed refers to the apron that identified a person as a servant. So you would know who the servant was in the house because he, 
You know, he wore this specific apron. And Jesus demonstrated this to his disciples there the last night before he was crucified. There he realized that nobody washed his disciples' feet. And so he, what did he do? He girded himself, right, with the towel and went around and washed his disciples' feet. And he told disciples, you know what I've done? I've given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. And blessed are you if you follow my example. And so in the same way, that's how we're to minister one to another. We're to love one another, minister one to another, and we're to be greater servants, um, the greatest servants to one another. Now, besides walking in humility, it's also a blessing to walk in humility. So yes, we're commanded to do so, but we're blessed for doing so. So Proverbs 3, 34 says, and Peter quotes it here, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so the Lord exalts those who are humble. He, he gives grace and favor to those who humble themselves and submit to him. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Therefore, or Peter says as a result of this, I mean, hey, the Lord commands you to walk in humility. The Lord blesses you for walking in humility. So what should I be responsible? Then we should walk in humility. Therefore, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. To humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God means that we're to look at God, you know, look at God and who he really is. And he's the Lord and we need to recognize who we really are, this relationship between us. It says, Jesus said, we're to be poor in spirit. It's really a great thing. It's to realize that we're spiritually bankrupt and we have nothing to offer. And that when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, that's where he began. As his, you know, his disciples came to them and the first thing he said out of his mouth was, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And it's that progression there. And it, it doesn't stop. And that's the, the walk of a disciple. We realize who we are, that we are nothing. And we have nothing to offer and we realize who God is, the fact that he's the one who fills and we hunger for what he has. Humility implies not only an attitude, but it implies a behavior. That if I realize I have nothing within myself and that the Lord is the only one who has what I need and his word is, you know, revealed that to me, then I need to obey his word. I need to follow his examples, what he tells me in scripture. Walking in humility also deals with casting our cares on God. It's a sweet promise, but also it's a result of humility, if you think about it. Often we try to be independent, and it's kind of our nature, right? We want our kids to be independent, all right, eventually, you know, and kind of do their own thing, and we, we learn that. I mean, at work, I work in the mechanical world, and a journeyman, he needs to be independent. Don't call me every five minutes when you have a problem. Kind of go out and do your own thing, kind of thing. And sometimes we carry that over into our spiritual life where, you know, we think, well, I need to be independent of the Lord. I, Lord, I got this. I'm good. I can handle it. And the Lord says, no, it doesn't really work like that in the body of Christ. The closer you grow to the Lord, the more you realize that you need to depend on him. You know, the more you realize, man, Lord, I, I can't do this on my own. I need to cast my cares on you. I need to make sure that I'm giving you everything. We can't be apart from the Lord. He wants us to be dependent. And as we walk in humility, as we grow in humility, we will become more and more dependent on the Lord. Verse eight, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So here's the important thing. 
while we're to cast our cares on the Lord, we need to make sure that we don't just let go and check out. Peter says, remember, you're in a war zone. You have an adversary who's continually looking for a way to attack you. Remember Job? As Satan appeared before God, he said, have you considered my, certain, my servant Job? And we all know that that word there, considered, means studied, as a general would study. Satan was always watching, always, always ready. Now, whether Satan himself is concerned with us is a different story. I'm not saying that he's specific, you know, you know, the Satan himself is concerned with you, but he does have demons who work for him, you know, fallen angels, and they work in a network and connected. Nevertheless, they're out to get us, in a sense. They want to stumble us. They want to make us fall. And we need to remember that, that we're in a war. Satan is like a hungry lion always looking for lunch. National Geographic, this is a bad channel. You know, I mean, you know, someone's going to get eaten, you know? So, you know, so if you watch Jurassic Park, someone's going to get eaten, you know? And, and I've become pretty good in telling who, you know, who's going to get eaten. You, you just know it, you know? If they don't have a very good part, like, yeah, that guy, he's getting eaten. You know it, right? And, and the same thing with these different nature channels. You can always kind of see which animal's going to get eaten. Usually it's the one that kind of strays off in the back. It's like, no. But, you know, and, and so... I, you know, in a sense, as believers, we need to make sure that we realize that we have, you know, we have this enemy. Now, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're to be sober. To be sober refers to having a proper mindset. So we're to keep a proper mindset. We're to realize that we're in a war zone. And we're to realize that we have an enemy. We're to be vigilant. This refers to our behavior in light of recognizing that fact. We need to make sure that we put ourselves in the right place, in the right position. Remember Samson? I always refer back to Samson, but he's just such a great example of someone who really messed up big. I mean, here's these Philistines. They were just looking for ways to get him, but yet he kept putting himself in the same situation time after time. It's like you just want to yell at Samson, what are you doing? I mean, but yet, nevertheless, he kept putting himself in that position over and over and over and over. If we have an enemy who's specifically attacked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we don't want to put ourselves in a place where we can be tempted with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. We need to be wise about these things. We need to be vigilant. We need to guard our lives. Now, um, when we do these things, we will walk godly and we will suffer persecution. And Peter reminds us of that. And, you know, that's what Paul said. He said, hey, all those who live godly will suffer persecution. So when you say, no, I'm not going to do that, or no, I'm not going to go there, you might get some flack from people, but nevertheless, we're to expect that, and we're not to become discouraged by it. We're to resist the enemy in the temptations. We're to be steadfast in the faith, meaning that we're to obey the word and walk in the word as it says, and if, we're, and if we receive persecution for it, we're not to be discouraged because the same persecution is experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It doesn't change. That's one neat thing about going to Colombia or, or Peru or you know, these different places we go, they're experiencing the same thing as us over there. It's a little different, you know, in places like Iran and Iraq where people are being beheaded by ISIS and things. You know, but nevertheless, in a sense, we're all facing the same thing as Christians. You know, we're all walking this walk. We're all on this pilgrim, pilgrimage. And so don't feel like it's just you. Peter says, no, everybody is suffering this way. <laughs> so be encouraged by that, you know? Because, you know, because the Lord is watching out for you and he's got a plan. Don't believe the enemy's lie. Verse 10, but may the God of all grace, 
who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. This is one of those verses that you can do a series on right here. It's just a neat, it's just an amazing verse. And really, each one of these terms is almost a sermon in himself in, in, in terms of suffering here. May the God of all grace. And so here, you know, the God that we serve is, is a God of comfort, but he's also a God of grace. He gives us what we need in times of persecution, in times of suffering. As the Lord told Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. God would give him this, this specific empowering to suffer and, and to do the things that the Lord called him to do. The Lord has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And so we're living for something greater than ourselves, especially even in our suffering. The Lord is working together all things together for good for those who love God. And so the Lord molds us and shapes us through our experiences. And here's some of the things that the Lord does through those experiences. He perfects us. He establishes us. He strengthens us. And then he settles us. What does that mean? Well, to perfect us means to mature us. To establish us means that he makes us more stable in our faith and our beliefs. To strengthen means he makes us stronger. And to settle us, I'm told, is a word that related to a foundation in the Greek. It means it keeps us grounded. Trials keep us closer to Christ because it keeps us closer and dependent upon him. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All glory and all dominion belongs to God forever and ever. All glory and dominion will be experienced as when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth. Right now, yes, the Lord is reigning. He is on the throne. But finally, in the end, when the Lord comes back at a second coming and establishes his thousand-year kingdom on this earth, really eternity begins in a sense. There's a thousand-year kingdom, and then after a thousand-year kingdom, you know, the, the, the great white throne, and then the new Jerusalem. But the Lord is coming back, and his glory and dominion will last forever and ever on this earth. Amen to that, right? So be it. Verse 12, by Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Sylvanus is another name for Silas. Silas served as probably the writer of this epistle, and Peter probably dictated the words to him. So, you know, this guy was writing as Peter was, was speaking. I love that Silas is referred to as faithful here. And what a good example in light of talking about ministry. Peter says, hey, man, this guy's faithful. I can rely on him. And it's the same thing for you and I as servants. The Lord just wants us to be faithful. Doesn't mean, we, you know, we don't have to be super talented, the greatest speakers, the, the greatest ministers, but the Lord just wants us to be faithful and do well the things he has put before us. Peter gives us the purpose of his letter here. Basically, he said it was to be a brief letter to encourage them and to demonstrate the grace of God, which can give us power to stand in any trial and any situation. These guys were in the thick of it, but yet Peter, he gives these commands. You know, often we think, okay, we should just take it easy on them, you know, because they're in trials and troubles. And Peter says, no, you guys need to submit to the government. You know, you guys need to submit to one another. You know, and, and the only way that they could do these things was by the grace of God. It's empowering that the Lord would give through the power of his spirit. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The, 
you know, those who are in Babylon, there's a couple of different takes on it. More than likely, it's probably a reference to Rome, where John Mark was. John Mark was the guy who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Then for some reason, he withdrew. Eventually, he hooked up with, um, you know, he, he hooked up with Barnabas later on. Barnabas took him on his side, and he ended up in Rome, ended up helping, helping out and serving with Peter as a faithful servant. Now, here we see the, the love of the body of Christ, the greeting for one another. It's almost like a text message, you know, when, when we text the guys down in Columbia, it's that same fellowship. He says, hey, everybody greets you. Everybody's saying, what's up down here? You know, and greet one another with a holy kiss. Men kiss men, women kiss women. So no weirdness in that. We shake hands. Now, there are some cultures who do give kisses on the cheek, and they do that in Peru, and it's just awkward as an American, you know, but we deal with it. And so, you know, but in the United States, you know, we shake hands give each other hugs kind of thing. And so that's, it's just the, the sign of hospitality and the love for one another. Peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So in closing, you and I, as we learn from Peter, are pilgrims. We're wandering through this world. We're journeying towards heaven. But the Lord's not done with us. He, do, he doesn't want us just to sit still and wait it out. But he wants us to press forward and take ground for him. On this road, we're going to experience trials and tribulations, but that shouldn't deter what the Lord wants to do in, his, in our life. We need to stick strong to the Lord and rely on his grace, and as we do, we'll grow as servants of God. Amen. Amen.